Good morning. Uh, welcome to New Hope. Those of you who are new with us this morning, um, we uh, Chris mentioned the family meeting that's going to be next week. Uh, the deal with our family meetings is uh, we'd invite all who are members of New Hope as well as all who are interested in knowing more about how we do what we do. <coughs> that pretty much leaves everybody in, but um, so don't feel excluded when we say it's a family meeting. <coughs> like Chris, I seem to have lost my voice. This would serve me right. No. Um, uh, but uh, Chris, did, for those of you who were who were uh, not here last month, Chris led uh, in masterful fashion a conversation about the uh, future vision for our children's and youth ministry here at New Hope. Uh, he's going to be doing that again, and uh, things worked very well last time, so we're pretty much going to do the same thing. We really do want for uh, the children to be part of this process. So those kids who are, uh, you know, second grade or so and older, <coughs> basically the ones that could reasonably be expected to hang out for an hour and talk uh, with each other around a table with some guidance and supervision um, without starting to set things aflame. Those are the folks that uh, we would uh, invite to be part of it and we'll have a special table for them as we did last time. Chris? Yes. Correct, yes, thank you. Um, yes. Thanks. But we're going to get the sandwiches from the same place because that worked really well last time. Um, so we would encourage you to do that and, and to continue to be in prayer um, as we uh, go through uh, a, a transition. It's, you know, it, um, we um, had the same children's person here for uh, almost five years and we're adjusting to her not being here and we're. Looking forward to seeing where God's going to lead us next, but uh, we want to be faithful to hear him in that process. So, uh, as Rick mentioned, this is indeed the last series, last sermon in the book of Leviticus. Yeah. We uh, have been going through Torah here at New Hope ever since the fall. Uh, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and we have been doing this uh, in part uh, because uh, we are going right after this to the book of Romans. And as I read the book of Romans, the question that keeps Paul up at night, he's the guy who wrote Romans, uh, is what about Torah? So how better to intensify that question than by spending a whole year studying Torah? The other reason is that uh, God has placed us here in Pikesville, uh, surrounded by uh, many of our Jewish neighbors, uh, and we are following the same uh, calendar that they follow, the same uh, lectionary, basically, that they follow uh, in the synagogue. So whatever our neighbors are studying Friday night and Saturday morning, we're studying on Sunday morning because we come after. Uh, and this is the last Torah portion, the last Parsha in Leviticus, Parshat Bechukotai. One of the great things about being me is that I get to spend a lot of time with my colleagues from the Jewish community. Uh, Friday morning, I got a chance to study uh, scripture with some of my, uh, my rabbi friends. And one of the great things about that, especially doing this series, is when I encounter an especially challenging passage, as we have had a few of in Leviticus, I get to say, all right, what are you doing with this this weekend? <clears throat> The answer my friend Steve had for me was, well, we have to talk about President Obama's speech because that's everything. That's all anybody wants to talk about. 
I don't have that option. So uh, here we are in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, just to remind you of how we got here. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that part? Uh, and then uh, people managed to screw things up. So uh, after the flood and after things were continuing to be a problem, God said, all right, here's my plan. Here is how I'm going to accomplish cosmic reconciliation. I'm going to choose a people. And he identifies this one guy, this one Aramean named Abram. And he says, through you, I am going to bless the entire world, which was a pretty impressive promise to make, especially considering Abram's age at the time. But nevertheless, God says, all right, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he does. This great nation ends up in Egypt due to famine and stays there due to slavery for some 400 years. God, in the book of Exodus, miraculously releases his people from captivity. And at Exodus chapter 20, we find them in in the desert at Mount Sinai, about to receive the law, about to receive Torah from God. This is the point at which the narrative grinds to a halt, and we get about a whole book and a half worth of legislation with the occasional vignette sprinkled in. We are near the end of that law portion. The story is about to start up again in the book of Numbers, not quite yet. But we are coming to the end of this period of law-giving. And what's important for us to realize in the course of all this law-giving is that God is giving his law to his people, not simply in the sense of a king giving his laws to his people, but God is giving a law to his people because these are the people that he has chosen, the people that he has redeemed, the people that he has commissioned for a specific purpose, the people that God is going to bring into another place that he is going to provide for them, not just for their own sake, but so that they can do this work that God called them to from way back with Abram of being a blessing to the rest of the world. And while we have a lot of parallels in the ancient Near East when we look at these ancient laws, those usually involve kings giving laws to their people. And kings, of course, being kings, could pretty much decide what the rules were going to be. They set the rules the kings understood themselves to be uh, servants of, or sometimes the incarnation of, the various gods. But the laws that were given were the king's rules given to the king's people. Here in Exodus and in Leviticus, what you don't have is a king giving laws, do you? You have God himself giving his laws to his people. He has cut out the middleman and is going direct. And so in the Ten Commandments, we usually, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. But as we saw when we studied that passage, that thou shalt not stuff is a very small portion of the text of the Ten Commandments. The bulk of the Ten Commandments is in the first few statements, which starts off, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. So you shall not abuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who abuses his name. You're going to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, manservant, maidservant, your animals, the alien within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The basis of this legislation is not any sense of natural rights. It's not any universal principles of governance, although you get plenty of that stuff in there. The basis, the foundation, is God. God himself and his relationship with his people. And this is important in part because... God obviously has to justify having this kind of authority, doesn't he? Anybody who's going to start telling you what to do needs to say why he can do that. fact is, he saved you out of slavery. He redeemed you. That, for one thing, gives him the right to say that. But more than that, he is, of course, the one true God of the entire universe who created us, and he has called his people to be in a special relationship with him. And it is on the basis of that relationship that God makes all of the rules that he makes for his people. The rules about how they are to handle dealing with servants, with property, how they're to build this tabernacle, this tent in which God was to be worshipped. The, the, the materials that it would be made out of, the kinds of furniture that would be in it, how often you light which fires, what kind of bread has to be where, how you make the bread, the special holy pancakes given in various offerings, the different types of sacrifice, all this stuff God gives his people in the context of this relationship he has with them. So, Chuck, if you want to throw that, uh, that uh, outline up here, uh, you, you see, and when we get to, to Leviticus... We have in the beginning the, the uh, laws of sacrifice. We get the little story about the uh, ordination of the priesthood and uh, Nadav and Abihu bringing strange fire and finding out that was not such a good idea. Uh, we have the food laws of Kashrut in chapter 11, 12 to 15, the regulations regarding purity. That, that's the, uh, the beloved leprous sores passages that uh, I know you all have uh, uh, well-worn in your Bible. Uh, we have the, uh, the Day of Atonement. The Yom Kippur, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, uh, strict prohibition on, on blood. And then in 18 to 25, as we've seen in the last few weeks, we have various regulations dealing with various things. And now finally, at the end, we have in chapter 26, the rewards and punishments that attend all this law that God, God is giving. And then chapter 27 basically is, is uh, kind of the equivalent of the table of weights and measures in the back of, of your Bible. It's basically uh, the table of values for uh, redemption of certain types of offerings. But 26 is, again, the kind of thing that you would find 
in a, an ancient Near Eastern covenant. This is what happens if you obey and what happens if you don't. These are the results of following what you've said you're going to do, and then these are the results of not doing so. So in chapter 26, God says, Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. Don't place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I'm Yahweh, your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. So again here, just as we had in the beginning... In the Ten Commandments, when this whole mess started off at the top of Mount Sinai with God delivering His law, here we have God starting off by establishing the basis for the laws, which is who He is and the unique relationship He has with His people. And the worst thing that you can do, God says, is to treat me like I'm not God and to treat something else like they are. So if you follow my decrees, and if you are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees of the field their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you'll eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I'm going to grant you peace in the land. You're going to lie down. No one will make you afraid. I'll remove savage beasts from the land. The sword will not pass through your country. You'll pursue your enemies and they'll fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand. And your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And I'll keep my covenant with you. You'll still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new stuff. I'm going to put my dwelling place, my tabernacle, my tent among you. And I will not detest you. I will walk among you and be your God. You will be my people. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and I enabled you to walk with heads held high. So again, the basis for what God says is what he has done for his people, the unique relationship that he has with them, and therefore that they have with him. And he is promising them that he is going to bring them into a land where they will enjoy prosperity, where they will enjoy security and health. As we've seen throughout the various laws in Leviticus especially, some of these laws may well have to do with public health issues, Uh, There are some laws that simply have to do with the the things you have to deal with as a nation state. But God is giving all of these because he is setting his people up to live well in the land he's giving them. He has taken them. Remember, they've been slaves for hundreds of years, right? Probably not a society poised to function well and to be governed well. And God says, I'm going to give you everything you need in order to make this work. Pretty sweet deal, right? You think about it, you know, a year ago you were a slave. Now you got all this loot that you took out of Egypt is, you know, kind of a little gratuity from the Egyptians on your way out. Now you're about to get a land. You're about to get security. You've got a, uh, the one true God of the universe has got your back. But if you will not 
listen to me and carry out all these commands. And if you reject my decrees and detest my laws and you fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. And the rabbis thought it was so important that people pay attention to the I will do this to you, that the rule is that in the synagogue, the cantor, once he begins reading these punishments, he is not allowed to stop until he is done. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You'll plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'm going to set my face against you so that you'll be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you'll flee even when nobody's pursuing you. And if after all this you won't listen to me, I'll punish you for your sins seven times over. I'll break down your stubborn pride. I'll make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil won't yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. And if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. I'll send wild animals against you. They'll rob you of your children. They'll destroy your cattle and they'll make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. And if in spite of these things you don't accept my correction but continue to be hostile toward me, I myself will be hostile toward you. I'll afflict you for your sins seven times over, and I will bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I'll send a plague among you, and you'll be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they'll dole out the bread by weight. You'll eat, but you won't be satisfied. And if in spite of this you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will detest you. I'll turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I'll lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I'll scatter you among the nations and I'll draw my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you're in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it didn't have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They'll run as though fleeing from the sword, and they'll fall even though nobody's pursuing them. They'll stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though nobody is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their father's sins, they will waste away. Well, that's cheerful. And that's vivid. It's funny too, isn't it? 
right? Like the part where, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be such cowards that the sound of a windblown leaf is going to make you run away and hide. You're going to be, you're going to be running away and you're going to trip over each other and fall over each other when you're running away, even though nobody's chasing you. But that, you know, eating the flesh of your sons, the flesh of your daughters, not so funny. Those of us who are parents know about logical consequences. When you're disciplining your child, you're supposed to provide logical consequences. So if, for example, they've watched TV when they weren't supposed to, then you know, they won't be able to watch TV for the next year and a half. Um, on the uh, bulletin, there's a very funny cartoon by a woman named Kate Beaton, a Canadian cartoonist about some logical consequences to rebellion against one's parents. And some of this stuff, it seems, is kind of logical consequences, right? I mean, if you're going to forsake God's protection, then you're going to expect that you're going to be vulnerable to your enemies, right? If you're not going to follow God's laws for how you maintain your agricultural practices then you should probably expect that your land is not going to produce the kind of crops that you would expect it to. I just this morning was listening to a, a story in NPR about a, uh, a guy who's an, an organic uh, farmer producing not only organic but kosher products. And uh, he, so when he harvests his grain, he has to have a rabbi walking next to the combine. And the rabbi has to walk next to the combine so that in case... He runs across a uh, scape of garlic. He can pull it out because if that were to be included with the wheat, then that would render the uh, grain unfit to be used in matzah that's kosher for Passover. But it turns out that the garlic growing there is a sign of there being the wrong level of sulfur in the soil. So not only is it something that uh, alerts you to the fact that there's a problem with how uh, whether your your pro- produce is kosher or not, it also it turns out alerts you to the fact that there is something wrong with your soil that needs to be corrected. And once he addressed the soil, then he was able to go and harvest a lot faster because a rabbi didn't have to stop nearly as often. So some of this stuff, it's logical consequences, right? But not all of it. In fact, I think God's very clear that what he is doing is not just allowing people to experience the natural results of their actions. There's plenty of that going on. But God has a reason for this. There is a point to this. He is taking credit, is he not, for what is going on. I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror. I will set my face against you. I will punish you. I will break down your stubborn pride. I will multiply your afflictions. I will send wild animals. I myself will be hostile to you. I will afflict you. I will bring the sword. I will bring the sword. God is saying that when the raging nations around his people come at them, with a sword to plunder them, God's saying, they are doing my will. I will send a plague. So when you retreat to your cities, you think you're safe, I'm going to give you a plague there. Try that on for a size. 
when I cut off your supply of bread. In my anger, I will be hostile to you. God's not a very good parent, is he? You're not supposed to discipline in anger. There he goes. I myself will punish you for your sins. I will destroy your high places. I will turn your cities into ruins. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offering, but no, I will scatter you. I will draw out my sword and pursue you. It's interesting, this word for detest. You may have it translated abhor or despise. The other place in the Bible that this word shows up repeatedly, the other, only other chapter in which it shows up repeatedly, does anybody want to guess what book that's in? Ezekiel. Does anybody want to guess what chapter of Ezekiel that's in? No. No, chapter 16. Thank you. Which you may remember, along with chapter 23, is one of the naughtiest bits in the whole Bible. Chapter 16 and chapter 23 are texts in in Ezekiel, and you can go home and read these at your leisure, where Ezekiel likens his people to sluts. Sometimes it's translated prostitute. That's not what God's trying to say. He is smoking mad at his people, and he uses all sorts of very creative and vivid imagery to describe just what they are doing to him. God is, after all, a jealous God, right? Isn't that what he said in the Ten Commandments? He's a jealous God because he is a loving God. Any spouse who finds out that her husband has been unfaithful and says, well, whatever, is not a loving spouse, is she? A loving spouse is a jealous spouse, and God most certainly is. In fact, to get this point across, he really did a number on poor Hosea, this prophet Hosea. God calls Hosea and he says, here's what I want you to do. All right? I want to give you a taste of what it's like to be me, Hosea. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go find a whore and you're going to marry her. Right? And then here's what's going to happen. Right? She's going to go and cheat on you and she's going to leave you. And then what you have to do is you have to literally buy her back and live with her the rest of your life. All right? Go for it. That's the book of Hosea. And here's what God says about this in chapter 2 of Hosea. Their, their mother has been unfaithful. She's conceived those children in disgrace. She said, I'm going to go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, God says, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she can't find her way. She'll chase after her lovers, but she won't catch them. She'll look for them, but she won't find them. And then she'll say, oh, I guess I'll go back to my husband as at first. Uh, Then I was better off than I am now. But she never acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold that she used to worship 
idols. So I'm going to take away my grain when it ripens. I'm going to take away my new wine when it's ready. I'm going to take back my wool and my linen that were intended to cover her nakedness. So now I'm going to expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one's going to take her out of my hands. I'll stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, new moons, Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I'm going to ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay from her lovers. I'll make them a thicket. Wild animals will devour them. I'm going to punish her for the days she burned incense to the idols. She decked herself with rings and jewelry, went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares Yahweh. She has been unfaithful. She has given credit to my competitors for what I gave her. So I'm going to take that all away. And therefore, God says, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor trouble, a door of hope. There she will sing just as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares Yahweh, you'll call me. My husband, no longer call me my master. I'm going to remove the names of the idols from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. In love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. And when he says you will know Yahweh, it doesn't mean you will know about Yahweh. It doesn't mean you will have some good Bible trivia in your back pocket. It doesn't mean that there is stuff that you are aware of. It means you will know in a personal intimate sense. It's the same verb when it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived. That's the kind of knowledge of Yahweh that he is calling his people to. That's the kind of knowledge that he makes possible. And what he's saying is that when his people sin against him, that's the kind of knowledge that they reject. That's what rebellion against God is. It's a rejection, a spurning of his love. If you think about the times that you've been rejected, God says, that's how I feel when you sin against me. But as with Hosea redeeming his wife, so God says, if they will confess their sins, in chapter 26, verse 40 of Leviticus, if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me, 
their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land for the land will be deserted by them. It'll enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They'll pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and detested my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or detest them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I'm Yahweh their God. I don't do that. I don't break my covenants. I don't utterly reject or detest or despise my people. For their sake... I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God because I'm Yahweh and that's how I roll. So these are the decrees, the laws, the regulations that Yahweh established on Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. There's a relationship that is being established here. It is being deepened is being defined this profound relationship between God and His people is what Torah is all about. It's not just a bunch of laws. It's not just about what you do when you find mold in your house. This is about God calling a people, really making a people, and giving them the opportunity to live well as His people. Not just for their own sake, although that would be plenty. But because through them, he is going to be blessing the entire world. God is going to use them as his agents of cosmic reconciliation. Unless, of course, they screw it up. You fast forward a bit. You do find some... 1,250 years later or so, one Israelite who is faithful to all of God's laws, all of his decrees, all of his commands, where the rest of his people had proven unfaithful. He proved faithful. Where they were unworthy, he proved worthy. And therefore, when Jesus himself offered himself as a sacrifice in a fulfillment radically comprehensive fulfillment of all these laws that we've been reading about. He made it possible for God to create a new people that are called by His name. We too, like Israel, have the commission to be about the work of cosmic reconciliation. We too are those through whom God will bless the entire world. And we too are in relationship with a jealous God who loves us to the point that He will get our attention as He needs to when we stray from Him, when we reject His love. Because that is what he does. That's what he's like.
That's who he is. He is the Lord, our God. And we're about to take communion in commemoration of his ultimate act of sacrificial love for us. Jesus demonstrated on the cross. We invite all of you who are followers of Jesus to come and join us. The white is grape juice, the red is wine. I invite you to come up and take the elements and then return to your seats and we'll uh, partake of them all together. But first, will you please stand with me and recite, along with the faithful churches throughout the ages, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.